uh, Tom Pegram, who is based at um, uh, School of Public Policy down the road, and he is the Deputy Director of the Governance. Global Governance. Global Lecturing Governance. Global Governance, yeah. Uh, and he is going to talk today about uh, his research on human rights and regulatory politics in Latin America. Yes. Okay. Thanks, Paolo. So, uh, yeah, good to be here, friends, <laughs> colleagues. Um, so, of course, as all of you know, you know, I've been interested in NHRIs, National Human Rights Institutions, in Latin America for what feels like quite a long time. Uh, my job now here is global governance, and in a way, I suppose this is where global governance touches down um, for me. Uh, now. As is the nature of these things, the topic has changed somewhat, so indulge me in a slight shift of focus from the advertised talk, but certainly relevant to that. Um, perhaps the prior task, before we get into a big theoretical explanation of regulatory politics and why these institutions perform their way to do, is to ask the question, what makes NHRIs effective, and that's the question I'm asking with uh, Katarina Linos, a colleague at Berkeley Law School. We've got a paper that uh, we're working on now. It's sort of coming towards, uh, hopefully, the sort of the, the final straight uh, at the moment, and it's really focused on the question of what formal design features contribute to NHRI effectiveness, which sounds uh, like a pretty obvious question, but it's one that hasn't been asked. Uh, or at least not definitively answered in the literature, and it's actually quite an initial debate that we're hoping to, to contribute to. So we think formal design does matter, that it has uh, some impact on the way NHRIs work in practice. Perhaps um, it has its impact is partial, but nonetheless uh, significant. But I suppose the key question is how partial and how, how significant. So I'm going to focus on the qualitative side of the project. We do have a qualitative component, of course, as is the, you know, the the fashion these days. Um, I will flesh out a little bit the, the, the quantitative um, and it'll be good to get your feedback. I'm off to Chile actually next week for an express trip to Santiago to the Chilean NHRI and I'll be drilling them for some, some insights as well when I'm, when I'm there. So, okay. NHRIs, here's a, a selection of NHRIs from the region. State-funded but independent uh, bodies tasked with promoting and protecting human rights. The independence, of course, is, is an empirical question. Uh, you take that on a case-by-case -case basis, but that would be a fairly workable definition. Two key prototypes is the Human Rights Commission, the Human Rights Ombudsman. And in Latin America, the Ombudsman is really the dominant uh, type, the Defensoria del Pueblo, Defender of the People. Um, but also just note that this is a, really a, a global phenomenon. There's now 120 NHRIs uh, in the world. There were... Uh, about 21 in 1990, so, so there's a massive diffusion effect. Latin America, uh, they can be found everywhere now except for Brazil in terms of national level institutions. So what makes these institutions effective? And you know, as we all know, effectiveness is a notoriously tricky concept. So the first task for this project was to conceptualize design features we have data on 22 different design dimensions of these institutions. That's a lot of dimensions, so we've kind of basically aggregated those into four categories, as you can see here. Uh, 
We draw on a lot of practitioner debate. We draw on the Paris principles, the UN guidelines on NHRI design. And the general idea is that the more safeguards that you have, the more effective the institution will be. And that's the assumption that we're interrogating in the project. But of course, uh, NHRI effectiveness is contingent on politics, on political context. But we think there probably is a structural element that contributes to effectiveness. So the idea right now is to put together a really focused paper, one that really takes one or two of these design features. In particular, the one I'll present today is individual complaint handling and um, really test that in light of case study materials. So this paper I'm going to present is focused on Chile and Peru. We also have, uh, we are looking also at promotional powers in the Asia-Pacific region, but that's a uh, those, those materials are really just, yeah, I haven't quite got a grip on those quite yet. So we'll focus on complaint handling today. And complaint handling is kind of a real bone of contention among NHRI practitioners. Some people think it's a vital component to the way these ombudsmen work, the importance of being able to receive complaints. Others think actually, you know, it's not that important or it may even make their jobs more difficult. It overburdens the institution. They basically become a mailbox for, um, you know, bureaucratic grievances. So in terms of the scholarship that we're locating this in, uh, the compliance gap, which, which is you know, a, a key preoccupation for human rights scholarship, of course. But in terms of theoretical claims, what we're playing with at the moment, and this is still sort of up for debate, is thinking about endogenous sources of, of uh, organisational change, uh, feedback effects between design, agency... Uh, there's quite a lot of scholarship in comparative politics, but like Daniel Carpenter, Abraham Newman, Paul Pearson, have done some really interesting work on these kinds of empirical questions. But the overriding emphasis in a lot of the scholarship, regulatory scholarship, is on constraining the agent. Right? The whole this idea that uh, essentially the, the key issue is negative behaviour on the part of the agents. So a lot of the a lot of the work drawing on assumptions from public choice economics has been on constraints, not on enabling. So we're much more interested in enabling agency. How do you actually engineer capability? Uh, and Daniel Carpenter has done a lot of work on bureaucratic autonomy. So in some ways, that would be a good point of departure. I think that's a useful point of departure. But perhaps before we get there, we need to do some more first-order tasks, which is really to, to, to dig down a bit on, well, you know, we clearly see NHRIs that are effective in some instances, Peru in certain times, well, I, I would actually suggest Peru is, a, is an exceptional case which has maintained effectiveness, how we if, yeah, impact positive, uh, while others are clearly sham institutions, particularly Mexican Federal Commission, but there's really limited exploration of what explains that, so the study's kind of taking up that challenge. Now, on the data side, and I'm not the, um, I'm obviously not the computational wizard on this project, so I will uh, just lay this out as simply as I can, but essentially, what do we mean by effective institutions? Well, the OHCHR provides one point of departure, um, but there is a lot of problems with the available measures around effectiveness in terms of trying to understand the impact of an institution on an aggregate human rights performance, so issues around calibration in light of context, issues around uh, um, selection bias. We seek to triangulate across different sources, so we're using sort of the Singrinelli 
index, but we also try and triangulate with peer review letter grades that are given to NHRIs within the UN system. Uh, so a system of A to C, A NHRIs are in full conformity with UN guidelines, but whether that really tells you much about their performance is, is another question. And then we ran an expert survey, uh, 45 experts independent of NHRIs to try and get a sense of whether they think the institutions are, are um, effective. So all of these measures are kind of, they have very serious limitations. I suppose the premise is that if all three measures correlate, if we have a result which is relatively robust, uh, then that can serve as a useful premise. But there's another issue here, which is all of this data is, is cross-sectional. Uh, so we really have to rely on case studies for thinking about change over time. So we push the data as far as we can, or Katarina pushes that data as far as she can, and then we really turn to, to the case studies. In terms of the kind of quantitative findings that, that come out of the data, there's no great bombshells there. I mean, we do find significant and positive correlations uh, between design and performance. If we drill down a bit on some of the key features, we do find support for, for um, investigative functions being important. Uh, perhaps this is quite intuitively obvious in a way. I mean, we see that institutional safeguards make a bigger difference in democratic regimes, which isn't perhaps surprising given that uh, most of our theories are derived from democratic contexts. So, but of course, we can explore some of those underlying reasons using the case study materials, in particular Peru, because Peru, of course, changes in terms of regime type over time. So that's, that's quite helpful as well. So in terms of case selection, when we look at the, how do we actually justify the selection of the cases, um, we're using a most similar research design. So variation on the independent variable. So we, we've sort of, as you saw, the aggregate measure of all those dimensions, design dimensions. There's a lot of difference on the investigation dimension and complaint handling is one of the key differences between the Chilean and the Peruvian office. Uh, another interesting point is that the, the variation is exogenously driven. That in Peru, it was very much Fujimori taking the script from, from, uh, from international fashion, uh, from the Iberian Spanish ombudsman template in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, the Peruvian office was established before the UN got onto this bandwagon. So the UN produced its guidelines in 1993. The Peruvian ombudsman was already uh, established in law in 1993. So this is exogenously driven reform. This is not, therefore, Fujimori thinking, yeah, like an ombudsman, that's a great idea. Uh, we should have one of those institutions and we should carefully think about how it's going to function in this context. The Chilean case comes much later, 2009, but also exogenously driven. Not driven so much by the Spanish Ombudsman template, but driven by the UN guidelines. And I'll get into that a little more in, in, in a minute. Now, of course, as with all such comparative exercises, uh, the cases do not match perfectly, and they differ in important respects. And, uh, you know, the caveat is, you know, can you really consider Chile and Peru as most similar cases? And I imagine maybe this audience might have strong views on that, as, as do I. Um, but I suppose the way we would approach it is that the challenge of human rights implementation matters in both contexts, raises similar pressing concerns in both Peru and Chile. 
And because Peru has a weaker attachment to democratic practices and to respect for rights than Chile, if context was driving the results, we'd expect to see um, um, the Peruvian office being less effective than the Chilean office. And that's not the finding that we arrive at. So that is justification for the, for the setup. But also, of course, we're doing within case analysis. So these case studies can stand on their own. And we're trying to be a little bit state-of-the-art on the qualitative side. So there's a lot of research coming online, people like Bennett and Chekhov on process tracing and so on. But what that really boils down to, as far as I can tell, is that you ask the right questions to try and drive towards the, some kind of valid inference. So essentially, these are the questions that we're asking of each case. And the idea behind the questions is that you're really trying to expose the effect of the mechanisms, actually trying to get a sense of how they matter in practice, um, and particularly maybe generating more specific information on situations where they seem to matter where you would expect them not to matter. So it's interesting to try and get a sense of perhaps the more counterintuitive side here. So if an NHRI such as the Peruvian case does have complaint handling powers, does it use those powers? Does it use them frequently? Does it use them effectively? Is it underutilized? Uh, that's one key line of analysis. Uh, and then, of course, when we turn to the shadow case, Chile, what happens when an NHRI lacks that safeguard? Um, can creative NHRI directors nevertheless carry out important activities even in the absence of formal mandate statutory provision. Um, if we were to add a couple more concerns to, to this, uh, I, was, I would probably flag the importance of thinking about how the NHRI employs these safeguards uh, in different contexts, particularly in terms of when the executive is friendly, perhaps towards the NHRI, when the executive is hostile towards the NHRI, and actually, you know, you may assume that under Fujimori, the NHRI would, would be subject to a lot more hostility, and that certainly was the case as, as they approached the 2000 elections. But um, at various times, the NHRI did carve out space to, 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 to operate uh, with a degree of support by the, the executive, particularly on public utilities, privatised public services, those sorts of issues issues which gave the Fujimori regime some kind of symbolic sense of efficacy uh, to a break with the, Gar the sort of dysfunctional Garcia administration. And then also in terms of sort of looking at the impact of complaint handling over time, to what extent does this design feature lead to vicious or virtuous cycles? So as I say, there's some people who argue that complaint handling actually is really problematic, that it can lead to the overburdening of these institutions. Uh, people like Richard Carver have sort of completely changed. They've gone completely sort of 180 in that debate. Initially, they were very much, this is a vital component of design. Now they think actually it's, it may be very problematic that it, it steers NHRIs away from more strategic action. So there's an interesting debate to engage there. We turn to the uh, case study materials. What do we find? Well, uh, certainly the Peruvian institution has used 
uh, complaint handling. Uh, well, obviously to a degree that's sort of just a supply and demand equation, but we see a, a real uptake, a progressive increase, I think year on year, maybe with one or two years dropping, but for the most part progressively increasing over time since it opened its doors in, in 1997. And broadly, I would suggest that the Peruvian case highlights the importance of complaint handling, the importance of that direct interface with the citizen in terms of authority, in terms of providing a source of legitimacy. Um, and uh, I think in particular, perhaps in the Peruvian setting, the Defensoria del Pueblo is emblematic of the potential of these kinds of structures which are alien structures. I mean, obviously the Ombudsman was originally a Swedish creation. These kinds of structures to insert into these kinds of developing fragile democratic settings and become valued if partial institutional remedies for, for otherwise weak rights claimants in situations of profound dysfunctionality uh, within the political and judicial systems. But the origin story is important, right? I mean, you do need to discount the selection bias, the idea that actually thinking about or trying to, trying to connect NHRI activity with an improvement in human rights, you have to discount the possibility that government is itself committed to improving human rights regardless. Well, I think, as I've written on elsewhere on the Peruvian case, we can definitely discard that uh, hypothesis. So the Peruvian Ombudsman did pretty much become the sole democratic agent of accountability during the latter years of the Fujimori administration. Um, of course, the uh, Fujimori regime initially was quite keen on rule of law reform. The Constitutional Tribunal, obviously, was, uh, was up and running in the early years, but was uh, unceremoniously shut down in 1997. The uh, magistrates... Um, tribunal was also essentially captured by the regime. So from 1997 onwards, essentially the Defensa de del Pueblo is an island of relative functionality within a sea of, of, of pretty corrupt and, and captured state institutions. Now, as this quote sort of highlights as well, it's very unlikely that Fujimori or those who were involved in legislating the ombudsman had any idea what the hell they were doing, uh, or actually much interest either. I mean, essentially the Constitution of 1993 achieved the, the main goals of the Fujimori regime in terms of the economic policy shifts, political shifts. Uh, the design of the ombudsman was deferred to people like Renzo Chiri, people who were essentially quite respected jurists working in the commission, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the commission of jurists. The World Bank was very active in pushing for the ombudsman as part of a massive package of rule of law reforms. Of course, the World Bank then released a report in 2001 uh, reflecting on the performance of that reform package, and the title of that report was, I think, Building on Quicksand, so it didn't go all to plan, but uh, yeah, the ombudsman was part of that package. I actually have a nice memo that someone sent me from the World Bank saying, you know, this is a great idea, this is going to transform the rule of law situation in, in Peru and so on. So there's quite a lot of optimism in the early 90s. And go back to the World Bank governance indicators as well. It's a rather peculiar trends going on in there uh, at that time. But as I say, I mean, Cesar Lander, uh, the constitutional, former constitutional tribunal judge, uh, essentially argues that you need to 
take very seriously the fact that the 93 Constitution decisively shifted the rules of the game in Fujimori's favour. The Ombudsman was peripheral, was a valuable component, but as uh, Cesar Lander also says, you know, if you have one drop of poison in, in the vessel, then it, that's, uh, that's still maybe deadly. So uh, I think we have to calibrate, obviously, the expectations around what the Ombudsman could achieve in that setting, and that perhaps brings us to the performance and how it's used these complaint handling functions. I don't have time, obviously, to go into great detail here. This paper is now running at 85 pages, so I'll just flag a few of the key findings. Uh, essentially, the Ombudsman has proven very adept at scaling up complaints from the get-go, so really thinking hard about issue linkaging, um, very high-profile campaigns, the Ad Hoc Commission for Innocence in 96, 97, uh, working with NGOs to expose forced sterilization of indigenous women in the 90s. Uh, that, those were complaints that were trickling in, uh, at, uh, in from decentralized offices or from NG the NGO community that the Ombudsman would then scaled up into uh, effective media campaigns. But also there's a lot of issues which really go under the radar, and that's something which continues today, issues around sort of residual waste, issues around access to water, all of these daily, you know, issues, the quotidiana uh, grievances and complaints. And that's something that perhaps is important in terms of the, the visibility, the legitimacy of the institution. How did it, how did it instrumentalize complaint handling? Well, in a number of ways. I need to do a few more interviews here, but we might point to, for example, um, just actually highlighting this massive volume of complaints in the media and also highlighting resolution of complaints as a symbolic of efficiency. So the Ombudsman was very effective, Santa Stevan onwards, but particularly Beatrice Marino, in giving the impression of, or the mystique of efficacy. And that perhaps is quite important. In fact, Beatrice Marino had uh, this device called the Defensometro, which was this kind of strange spinning wheel thing which... Uh, told you how well the complaint handling had gone, how many had been resolved, and so on. I, I think they might have retired it now, but it, uh, it did make it into, the, into I think, uh, El Comercio a couple of times. Um, they've also used the complaint volume to justify budget increases, right? So the Peruvian Ombudsman, again, Beatriz Marino, particularly effective in negotiating budget increases uh, in light of in growing workload. As I mentioned, complaints coming in on privatized utilities, tele telecommunications and so on, were a really important source of um, uh, well, support for the Defense Ideas work. Again, something that even the, the, uh, the, the, the tabloid media uh, picked up on during the Fujimori years. And that has, has continued today. Many complaints do concern structural violations. So under the Fujimori regime, certainly there were very serious civil and political violations occurring, but probably over 50% of all complaints even then were issues around pension disputes, issues around access to medical care, and so on. And that is, those issues are more difficult to resolve. They're less conducive, perhaps, to massive national campaigns. But at the same time, the work of the defense leader on the side of the citizen in those kinds of more mundane areas, I think, uh, has also been 
being appreciated. Now, one indication perhaps of whether an NHRI has been effective is the amount it, the, so the amount it's antagonized the executive, right? So, you know, has the NHRI uh, really come up against serious backlash from the executive? Has it been a defensor del pueblo or a defensor del puesto? You know, these sorts of issues. I think you can certainly say in the proving case that the ombudsman has indeed been subject to hostile action uh, under Fujimori. It was subject to a congressional investigation for misconduct in 2000 during the election process. Under Garcia, um, Mauricio Mulder, the APRA attack dog, was regularly sort of, you know, sent to attack Marino very personally. Um, so she must have been doing something right, I would suggest. Uh, and now what do we see? Well, we had a, we've got an extraordinary situation where the defensor Interino has been Interino since 2011. In 2013, Congress uh, managed to appoint a political stooge to the office. Three days later, Umara had to intervene and annul the appointment because of massive street protests in Lima. And actually, just yesterday, we found out that Congress will vote on the Defense Order del Pueblo again on the 18th of May. We'll see what, what, what happens. So, so uh, watch this space. The extent to which complaint handling powers is material to that performance uh, as, as a sort of a irritant to, to, the, to, to the powerful in Peru is, I think, an important question. And I'm still looking, perhaps, to consolidate the evidence there. But... Uh, you know, sifting through the interviews, sifting through the evidence, uh, it's clearly import an important part of the, the picture, the whole. So as implied by this observation by, by Marcial Rubio, uh, in countries like Peru, where the state has traditionally neglected the institutional sphere of, of democracy, uh, an institution such as the Defense Idea may indeed have uh, uh, an important novelty value as well in the eyes of the citizenry. So that's the Peru case. If we turn to the Chilean case then, in Chile, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, the evidence does seem to support our contention that a lack of complaint handling is problematic. But it really wasn't as simple as I thought it would be. Uh, when I started digging down with interviews and so on, um, there was a lot more nuance than I expected. But not notwithstanding very important interventions, and it's important to acknowledge the, the work, the achievements of the Instituto in, in Chile, uh, it has struggled to consolidate its image, and uh, particularly as a bridge between the state and vulnerable groups uh, and the citizenry at large. Now, in terms of the origins of the Chilean institution, again, it lacks these robust protective powers, not just complaint handling powers. It cannot compel cooperation, it cannot uh, receive individual complaints, of course, and there's a range of others I'll detail in just a minute. Why is this? Well, if we go back to the, the legislative record, and Chile's a wonderful country to research because they put everything down on paper. There's a sort of 400-page legislative tome on this, just this one project with every quote, and so absolute gold dust quotes sitting in there. Uh, very serious political opposition to this very design feature. Right. So you had very powerful conservative elements in Congress and in the Senate adamant that individual complaint mechanisms would not be introduced into this NHRI structure. You then had human rights activists and the UN really trying to counter this, 
particularly saying that you know the dominant Latin American paradigm is to have complaint handling as an essential feature. But they lost. And the reason they lost was because government pointed to the UN guidelines and said, well, the UN guidelines don't make this obligatory. In the Paris Principles, complaint handling is, is um, you know, it's, it's an optional extra. So we're not going to do it. So the Ombudsman, or the Institute, sorry, does not have complaint handling powers. How has that impacted upon its functioning? So, uh, Per and I were in Chile, you know, uh, two years ago now, <laughs> time flies, uh, doing research on torture prevention. And clearly, the, the Institute has done a lot of important work on social protests, on torture prevention, on uh, prison conditions. And this is acknowledged. And the political hostility that has been directed at the director, the first director, Lorena Frias, also shouldn't be underestimated. But the Institute does display quite a few protection deficits. So it is unable to represent victims in court. Um, it can only initiate formal legal action on a very prescribed set of crimes. So just genocide, crimes against humanity, torture, and forced disappearances, uh, and trafficking of migrants. So, you know, obviously in today's context, crimes against humanity, genocide, these are not really material in, in Chile. Uh, the Institute must generally defer investigations that fall outside those four areas to the general prosecutor's office. It has no power to compel evidence. And um, it's, it's certainly possible to speculate that the absence of complaint handling powers has contributed to budget cuts. And the Institute's been subject to severe budget cuts time and again. What other issues came through in the interviews? Well, one of the key issues is issues of accountability and issue selectivity. So a lot of people voice fear that without a formal mandate to monitor, to follow up, to process individual complaints, um, that an awful lot of discretion is left to the leadership of the Institute. And were a partisan director and partisan board to be appointed to the Institute, then that could severely undermine the work of the office. But most people were fairly positive on the strategic approach of, of the current director. Now, another indication that this might be a problem is does the NHRI seek to work around the problem, right? Does it, does it try and find some kind of loophole? And that was really interesting too because, yes, uh, the Chilean office does. So they have interpreted Article 3.6, which is a general power to receive any information, as a power to receive complaints. So... Um, got some data in a second, but they've also established a attention to the citizen program, a unit within the office, and those are the people I'm going to be going out to meeting with next next week. And in 2015, it, so they launched in 2011, so four years after launch, they've begun issuing information on complaints received. So here's the information for the first half of, of 2015. And the largest set of cases is uh, the top there, and basically... That massive amount of cases refers to maladministration. So this, the, we've got issues of uh, welfare benefits for, for detainees, arbitrary transfers across prison facilities. You've got issues around pension disputes, access to healthcare, medical negligence, all of these kinds of you know, daily grievances that, that, um, that you'll find 
all over Latin America and indeed uh, in many other jurisdictions. Um, the second largest set of cases, 373, refers to historical violations, requests regarding reparations in particular. And that is quite interesting in the sense that uh, one of the key complaints by a lot of human rights advocates in Chile is that people tend to associate human rights with historical violations. So it's very likely that for many Chileans, the Institute itself is also very much identified with historical violations. Now, there's no information on complaint follow-up or supervision because the Institute is not obligated to do that kind of work, and at the moment they feel that's not a good use of their resources. What's the problem here? Well, the key problem, to my mind, and the one that was flagged in various interviews, is that there are very serious protection deficits in Chile in terms of the protection framework for human rights infractions such as these ones which are not justiciable. So human rights infractions which are often omissions by the state or negligence on the part of state officials, but these are not crimes as such, right? So many of the issues in that top box fall, fall into that category. Now, the institute officials I spoke to were like, well, yes, you know, this is a problem, but we would point to the density of the institutional apparatus in Chile, that Chile already provides significant, if not sufficient, routes to remedy for these kinds of grievances. However, other observers I spoke to uh, are certainly not convinced by that analysis. So the Chilean courts, utility supervisors, consumer protection agencies, labour tribunals, I've had a look at a range of institutions, and many of them do not have jurisdiction over general human rights infractions. They certainly do not use the language of human rights. Um, so in effect, often remedies are ad hoc, partial, or basically uh, inaccessible. And another interesting twist to the Chilean case is that actually very little assistance, ex assistance exists outside the state. So something else which perhaps you take for granted in Argentina or Peru is that you have a, you know, a very active NGO community. In Chile, uh, you know, there's very, very few human rights NGOs dedicated to seeking redress for victims uh, of human rights violations. Probing that a bit, what comes through is that many international, local human rights NGOs just disappeared during the Chilean uh, transition to democracy. They were viewed as out of step by the Chilean public, viewed out as out of step by the donor community, with the overriding objective to uh, secure democracy. And that's, I, find, I think, quite fascinating, actually. Uh, and uh, it's a very serious concern for those few human rights advocates and litigators in Chile who are trying to push forward institutional reform on this agenda. So that, in a nutshell, is the study. In terms of where we go next, and that perhaps takes me to the abstract that was publicised for this talk, yeah, I, you know, key takeaways, I think one of the key takeaways from this project is the importance of rule of law mechanisms, particularly in Latin America. So something I'm really fascinated by is that it seems to matter less in Asia-Pacific. It seems that in Latin America, where you have a strong Republican liberal tradition, for instance, um, uh, Ampero, uh, sort of habeas corpus, you know, the, these, are, these are very important individual protection elements that are within the Latin American tradition. Clear statutory provision seems to be very important because governments are keen to comply with the formal basis, or at least be seen to comply with the formal basis of the rule of law. 
if you read Gary Brodan's work on Malaysia or the Philippines, or talk with Malcolm Evans, which I, I did recently, the, the head of the subcommittee on prevention of torture, statutory provision matters a lot less, it seems, in Asia-Pacific. A lot of what drives politics there is networks, clientelism, religious affiliations. So that, that's something which I'm, I'm very interested to explore a bit more. And then the book project is really to take this further, maybe to ask what I think is the most important question, which is motiv motivation questions. So it's really important that we don't conflate design, uh, rule compliance with action on the part of the agent. Um, how do we theorize agency discretion? Well, I think enabling structures are important, but how do we theorize why agents actually actually um, make use of this, these design opportunities? And taking principal agent theory, turning it on its head, really focusing much more on principal moral hazard than agent moral hazard. Uh, I would suggest that we can play with the idea of principled agents and unprincipled principles. And when we look at the NHRIs and the ombudsman, there's clearly, there are principal ombudsmen. They, you know, they seem to do things which seem to be in the public interest. So how do we explain that? I'm reading a lot of work on the attitude of judges, Richard Posen's work and so on, to try and dig down on those questions. Um, but it seems to me that to understand the behaviour of agents, we have to go beyond design and also take into account issues around uh, interests, but also values, also public service motivation. Um, why does the proven, why did Beatrice and Molino feel compelled to, you know, step up as the human rights ombudsman in Peru? Why doesn't the Mexican Human Rights Commissioner feel that same motivation? Uh, that's the, the real question I think that's, that's crucial to ask. And my initial intuition is that it, it really comes down to two things. One is that uh, effective NHRI leaders, they, they find that they have a, a, a desire to fulfill their professional mandate. They have a principal desire to do a good job, essentially. But also they have a self-interested incentive to protect their regulatory authority from assault by government actors. So that's kind of the point of departure for, for where I'm going for the, for the bigger meta project. So I think I've spoken enough. Yeah. Thanks.